Hey guys, welcome back to the Allergic to Grace podcast. I'm Victoria. And I'm Whitney. And we're so glad you joined in to listen to today's episode (laughs) (laughs) 3.5. Unintended, but we're just picking it back up in chapter 13, um, all the way through 15. So, where were we? We left off. Abram had just told Pharaoh that Sarai was his sister. So the Pharaoh took Sarai um, as his wife or one of his wives. God was plaguing the Pharaoh's house. Yep. Um, And so Pharaoh gave Abram um, a bunch of stuff as kind of like a dowry for Sarai. Mm -hmm. He allowed Abram to keep all that stuff, said, please take your wife and just go get out so that's what they did so they left egypt and they went back to bethel which is where abram was before the famine hit in the land and he was forced to go to egypt yeah so he was very rich in livestock silver and gold um both him and his nephew lot were very rich right yeah yeah and I have a note here, and it just said generosity question mark. Because if you remember in the last episode, we were talking about how Abram basically swindled Pharaoh out of all of his stuff. Not mm-hmm. all of it, but a good, a good bit of stuff. Yeah, to basically grow his his wealth. Um, and it was a question of, did he intend that to happen, knowing that God would have saved him anyway? Or... Did he really do it just because he was scared feared for his life? Yeah. But I mean, in any aspect, he failed to trust God. Yeah. In general. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I just have generosity question mark. Why was he so well off? Because he mean, was well off before he even went to um, the land of Canaan. Yeah. Now, there's no biblical evidence of this, but. I had watched a documentary earlier in the week and it had discussed the possibility of Abram and his father, Tara or Tara, however you pronounce his name, Mm -hmm. being the people who, this is going to sound so silly, but I'm telling you, if you look up ancient civilizations, you will see it. People who wrote in cones. um, Cones. Cones. They were literally, they looked like cones. Like, you know how... Like traffic cones? The shape of that, yes. Mm-hmm. It was called, oh my goodness, what was the ancient writing calling? It, in cuneiform or something like that? Uh-huh. Um, And they would take a reed and these giant glops of clay in the shape, like cone-shaped, I don't know why, or mm-hmm. pillow-shaped, Mm-hmm. cone shaped or pillow shaped and they would take a read and then that's how they would write and with the development of these city states and things you know it became important to start keeping track of records of income outcome you know that type of thing mm-hmm. um because people were now starting to measure wealth via stuff yeah and um from what i understood or from what this documentary had said was is that he and his father i don't know that they were scribes but they definitely traveled for their trade yeah so i don't know if they were the people who wrote on these cones and then like would take these cones to other city-states within the area, you know, miles and miles and miles away. And so, you know, maybe that's how they obtained their wealth. I don't know. We don't have anything to go off of here. That's interesting. Now, like I said, I don't 
I don't think that there's any type of biblical proof or evidence for that. That's yeah, but that's when you know you can have you kind of have to sometimes step outside of the Bible to figure out what was going on historically. Yeah, in the area at the time. Yeah, but that's interesting. Yes. Um, So I don't know where they got him, and you figure Lot. I mean, his father died, so he probably got left. With all of his all things, of his stuff yeah. or a portion of his stuff if he had other sons or whatever. So Yeah, well we had another daughter. Well, she didn't count, A, because she was a woman, which don't get me started. <laughs> and B, she married her uncle. <gasps> Who had to give permission for that, I wonder? Probably the grandfather. Of course. Okay. Anyway. Um so yes. They Lot, have all of this wealth. Yes. Lot and Abram are both very wealthy and they're both taking up the same amount of space um, in Bethel where they are. And so Abram's people started to argue and quarrel with Lot's people about having enough room for their livestock, really. Yeah. And it wasn't necessarily that Lot and Abram were butting heads, but like their servants and their workers were butting heads. Yeah, their herdsmen or their shepherds or whatever. Yeah. And it was kind of like. Yeah, and it was kind of like two separate little clans, yeah. if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, so Abram comes to Lot and says, I don't want any trouble with you. You know, you're my kin. I've taken you in as my own. Um, so I'll let you pick the first of whatever we can see, wherever, because we need to separate. We need more space to grow. We need more space, you know, to do our day to day. So Abram gave Lot the first pick on where to go. Yeah. And I think that says a lot, too, because I myself would want to have the first pick. But then, too, I think it just further proves that Abram really looked at Lot as his own son because he let him pick first. And then what he picked, he just allowed him to have. Yeah. So I think Lot kind of makes a selfish choice here. He chooses a side that is well watered and plenty well, pretty well set up and leaves Abram with the other half. Mm -hmm. So Lot chooses by sight because he he sees all that is out there near the River Jordan, close to all this agricultural wealth that is there in the Mm -hmm. land. And Abram chooses by faith. He put his faith in God that Lot would choose what was meant for him, and he would be left with what was meant for himself, Abram. So Lot sees all that the land of the Jordan could provide, and quote-unquote, like the garden of the Lord, he chooses to settle as far as Sodom. So I have this little note in here that came from my study portion. It says, humanity's environment is not the cause of sin. Moral corruption is. Correct. In the ideal environment of Eden, sin originated and sin now abounds in the rich territory Lot chooses. Yep. So he chooses because it looks like the garden of the Lord, even though it's riddled with sin, as we will come to find out. Yep. Absolutely. And I would just like to point out that eventually Lot becomes a city slicker, pretty much. Lot the city boy and ends up living and establishing himself and his family in the city um, that's 
known for having wicked ways to people there are known for being great sinners. Um, And we'll see later in chapters what happens to that city. Yeah. You know, I think it's just funny here in chapter 13, verse 14, the Lord then appears to Abram or speaks to him after Lot had separated from him. So it's kind of similar in chapters 11 and 12, the Lord appeared and said to Abram after his father had died. So it's kind of like he was waiting for these people to be removed from his life to send him on his next path. Yeah. And, you know, as we know, sometimes people are removed from your life for a reason. Yeah. God removed Lot from Abram's life just because, one, there was a space issue, and two, Lot's not part of his family blessing. You know, it's everybody descended from Abram. Yeah. Just kind of how Isaac is the heir of his blessing, whereas um, Ishmael isn't part of that blessing line either. So moving on to that last part of chapter 13, he says, Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of the Myanmar, mm-hmm. which are at Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. And I just thought it was interesting that he made him walk the length and the breadth of the land. And my Bible says, according to ancient custom, a property transfer was finalized by the new owner's visit to the land. By this command, God had has Abram lay oh. symbolic claim to the promised land. Very interesting. I was like, oh, oh well. that's really cool. It, the song, 5,000 miles or 500 miles, pops in my head. And just, oh, well, well, uh. <laughs> All of his travels. Uh, <laughs> that's his theme song. <laughs> seriously. Anyway, so moving into chapter 14, this chapter is broken down into about three parts, in my opinion. Um, one, the events leading up to Lot's capture. Two, Lot's rescue by Abram. And three, Abraham's meeting with the kings of Sodom and Salem, right? Mm-hmm. So chapter 14 goes into a bit of a detail about what was going on in the area at the time prior to Lot's capture. And in summation, it was a bunch of men fighting over stuff and land and territory, property, people, right? Yeah, because that's what this time is. It's like we're growing cities. Yeah, and they want power. So... My Bible gives a good like overview of the main battle where Lot is captured. It's called the Battle Battle at Valley of Sidium. Um, and it says, When the five Canaanite cities rebelled against their four Mesopotamian overlords, the four kings led a campaign to reassert their control over the region. The campaign culminated in a battle in the Sidium Valley, and Abraham's nephew Lot, who was living in Sodom, was captured and carried off. When Abraham was informed of Lot's capture, he and his men pursued the four kings to Dan, where they recaptured Lot and chased the fleeting forces as far as Hoba, Hoba, north of Damascus. <laughs> I'm butchering all of those names. Sounds, I'm so sorry. I don't have any idea. <laughs> <laughs> right. So that was just kind of like that. There was a lot of war and strife in the area. There was something called a sure. Well, how would you say that word? 14, verse 1, Chertolomer, <laughs> or somebody Ch- called that. Chertolomer? I don't know. Chertolomer king of 
Yeah. There was a lot of kings and a lot of people just fighting over stuff. So yeah. Lot's captured in this big battle at the Valley of Sidium. And word gets back to Abram that his nephew has been captured. Abraham gathers his forces and goes to take his nephew back. Sure does. All 318 of them. That's a lot of people. When you think about it. But then when you think about the number of people that these other kings had Mm -hmm. and resources that they had, for him to just take the small number of men that he had and go after that whole army, it's just crazy. Yeah. Um, And he wasn't going up against like one army he was going up against what like three multiple right three or four right yeah Yeah. that had banded together yeah um and i read somewhere that his victory came because he attacked in like the night and so like they didn't really see him coming um and then all of the other kingdoms that were oppressed or who had lost in the previous battle came and helped him and joined together yeah to to send off the other enemies basically so after this, he gets a lot and he gets a big loot of all this stuff that was, you know, riches, riches of war, basically. Um, and he's walking back to Bethel, right? Yeah. To where he was with all of his 310 men. Yeah. From Dan. From Dan. Yeah. That was far. Like, this was not something that happened no. in a few days. Like, yeah. these places are very far apart from each other. Yeah. So on his way back, he comes across the king of Salem and the king of Sodom. He does. And I just want to take a second to talk a little about the king of Salem. So Salem was an ancient name for Jerusalem. It's still in that initial name of Jerusalem, S-A-L-E-M, today. And is related to shalom, the Hebrew word for peace. Yes. Um, and so, how would you say this guy's name? I'm, we're going to butcher it. So sorry. Mel, I would say Melchizedek. Melchizedek? Melchizedek. Is it inappropriate to call him Mel? I think that's okay for these okay. purposes. For these purposes. All he will be hence now and <laughs> further Mel. referenced as Mel, <laughs> the king of Salem. <laughs> So this guy, Mel, um, his name literally means the king of righteousness. Um, He blesses Abram and attributes Abram's victory to the power of God. Um, And in turn, Abram tithes and gives a 10% of everything he has to this Mel guy. And so in doing so, affirms the truthfulness of his blessing and his words. Where, as in contrast to the king of Salem, we have the king of Sodom, which I find it interesting that this guy has no name. He's just referred to as the king of Sodom. We have two very different characters at play. Um, The king of Sodom is surely small-minded, and he makes these remarks towards Abram. He expresses no gratitude for his efforts in pushing off the opposing forces, and he dishonors Abraham. Abram, excuse me. So do you remember what God said he would do if anyone dishonored Abram? Yes. What did he say? He would curse them, right? Yeah. Just like he did the Pharaoh in Egypt. So 
it's kind of a, a little glimpse into the future here, if you will, that the king of Sodom dishonors Abram. We're just going to keep that little nugget in the back of our brain as we move through Genesis. So Absolutely. And I think, too, it's interesting to see also, and this is going back a little bit, but in verse 13, we see the word Hebrew for the first time. Um, and that's just interesting to see because here they were describing mm-hmm. Abram's ethnicity and also, too, because Abram is the father of yeah. all the nations yeah. who Jesus descended from. So this guy, Mel, you know, Abram gives him 10% of everything. And this king of Sodom wants to give Abram riches, I guess, but he's also wanting to take back what was his from the original war or battle or whatever. Mm-hmm. So Abram's like, you know what? No, I don't want anything to do with you. You can take your stuff, take what's yours, but I don't want you to give me anything. And so by rejecting the king of Sodom's gift, Abram is relying on God to make him a great nation and not on human kings. So it's kind of a little bit like he's growing in his faith because he went to Egypt, the the Pharaoh gave him all of these things and he took it willingly, even though he knew that Sarah was his wife and she didn't need a diary or dowry because she was his wife. (laughs) But now he's rejecting the king of Sodom's gifts and relying solely on God to provide and to keep to his promises. So starting in chapter 15, this is God's covenant with Abram. So in chapter 12, God calls Abram uh, and tells him that he would make him a great nation. Um, In the beginning of 15, chapter 15, God is certifying his promise of offspring and land by making a quote-unquote official covenant with Abram. Um, But not before Abram kind of throws a fit a little bit. Yeah, so... We see Abram is telling God how sad he is that he doesn't have any children of his own. I mean, I feel like in those first few verses, you can really feel his sorrow. Mm -hmm. Um, Because if you didn't have children, your name and your legacy, for lack of a better term, ended with you, which was a big deal, especially in those days. And keep in mind, you know, like Victoria said, God had promised to make Abram's offspring basically all the nations, all the people of the world. You know, as much dust as on the ground there is, this will be his offspring. But he still, at this point, does not have any children of his own in order to make that a possibility. I would have been sad. I would have been mad. Mm -hmm. Yeah, And I would have been confused because thus far, I've been doing everything you told me to do. You know, when I was 75 years old, I left where I was with what I had. I went to where you said to go. I did what you said to do. I followed all of your rules. Yeah. And you still have not shown me any inclination, you know, that this is going to happen. And so I think it's kind of God's response is, I don't, I hate to say the word cool, but instead of getting angry with Abram for being angry or upset, I think that this just shows how personal of a God our God is. He Mm -hmm. understands. And so his response to Abram is, 
can you count all the stars in the sky? Like, can you sit and number all the stars in the sky? Because if, if you can, then your offspring will be numbered. Mm-hmm. And so in hearing this, Abram remembers like, okay, yes. Yeah. And he believed It's like them. he had a momentary lapse. A, a moment of weakness. Yeah. And, and I think. I mean, it's deserved, I think, because yeah, there's been about 25-ish years between his first call from God first calling him out of paganism to this point where he's officially making his covenant with him. And I think the only reason why that he had to make it quote unquote official was because Abram did question. He questioned him twice. Well, and because God had to do something. Visual yeah. To show I mean, him. and we're flesh. Yep. Like we need, it's very difficult for us as humans to just accept the word of something without there being some type of physical evidence or physical something. Like if somebody today said, hey, in 25 years, if you do everything that I've asked you to do, I'm going to give you my car. Would you believe them? No. Exactly. (laughs) Ain't nothing in this world for free. (laughs) (laughs) Seriously, though. So I think it kind of, parallels we can see abram's obvious humanity in that he's complaining to god about what he doesn't have he doesn't see that everything he does have was provided to him by god but he's just looking at those specific things that god said i'm gonna give you but he doesn't have them yet you know he says i don't have any kids you haven't given me any land you're making me walk around all over the freaking place what's happening so god doesn't get mad And I think you brought up a great point in that he could have. He could have been like, why don't you trust me? You know? Yeah. But he doesn't get mad and he just gives him a visual act. And that's where we come to this part where I, upon first reading it, was like, what is going on? (laughs) Why is there so many animals being slaughtered and cut in half? And I don't get it. But apparently it was just this visual act to show that um, God was making his covenant with Abram. So before this happens, there's this verse in here that says, how am I to know that I shall possess it? And talking about God giving Abram land and making him a great nation. It's the second time that he's questioning. So he first questions about, you haven't given me any children. And now, secondly, you haven't given me any land. So God shows him this visual act. He says, bring me a female cow that's three years old, a female goat that's three years old, a ram that's three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he cuts the animals besides the the birds in half, and they put... A deep sleep on Abram, right? Well, I think the sun was coming down. Yeah. It was getting dark. And I know he kept like the birds of prey away from what was going on. Yeah, from the sacrifices. Yeah. But this part, it says, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. And I was confused about that. But my Bible gave me like a little explanation. It says... As other ancient Near Eastern texts indicate, by passing between torn animals, signifying the punishment due to those who break the covenant, God invokes a curse upon himself should he fail to keep his covenant, because he can swear by no higher authority God swears by himself to keep the covenantial terms. So by doing this act, 
God is basically saying, I swear on me that I will give you everything that I've promised. And he didn't have to do that. No, absolutely not. And I think this too, like, again, personal and loving God, Mm -hmm. Abram wanted to see something. Abram wanted to know how he was going to have all this. And so God, who, as we said, didn't have to do any type of physical show, did. Yeah. And it makes you wonder why he did that. The sacrifice thing? Yeah. I think he just did it for Abram. Yeah, for Abram, because he's a loving God. Yeah. Because, you know, so many times people ask God for a sign. They say, you know, show me something, tell me something, you know, that I know that your promise or your will or everything will be done. Because everything ultimately is in our favor because God only does good. Um, But, you know, all too often that sign never really happens. Yeah. So, like, why did he choose to show a sign to Abram? I don't know. I'm going to ask him one day. Do it. (laughs) Put it on the list. On the list. I have a list of questions. uh... The Ice Age. So anyway, um, at the end of chapter 15, the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and the Lord said, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions." As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in good old age. So this is basically God telling Abram what's going to happen. Yeah, that's exactly what he's doing to him. And he's we can like, see that unfold throughout the rest of the New Testament yeah. or the Old Testament. Yeah, absolutely. He's telling him like, you know, listen, this is going to happen, but it's not going to be pretty and you're not going to be here for it. Yeah, and it's not going to so, be quick. That's what? It's not going to be quick. No, no. And I think, too, that this is just another good example how uh, God, when you pray or you ask for something, he says, wait. Mm -hmm. It's for his glory. Because think about it. Without a struggle, there is no miracle. Because if everything is going the way it's supposed to, does anybody stop to marvel? I mean, I'm not trying to be a jerk here or anything but normalcy doesn't get people's attention Mm -hmm. but drastic measures do like being oppressed for hundreds of years then getting your freedom from being a slave and now when you had nothing you're leaving with money more riches than you were when you came or when you were born there and you just walked across the bottom of a dry ocean yeah for freedom that gets attention You know, like normal, normal stuff, like when the disciples told Jesus in the New Testament, hey, Lazarus is really sick. We should you should go see him. And he's and he says and he waits. He waits for, I think, three or four days. Mm -hmm. And then he goes. And by the time he get there, unfortunately, you know. Lazarus is already dead and he tells, you know, Lazarus's sister, I can't remember if it was Mary or Martha, but basically like he's not dead. This is all for God's glory. And he raises him from the dead. Mm -hmm. What gets more attention? You know, healing someone from being sick is a miracle in itself, but raising someone that has been dead for multiple days, you know, weight just grows faith. Mm hmm. 
faith grows in the waiting. Mm -hmm. It's exactly what it is. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly what he's doing here. Because like I said, how dramatic would it be right now? How much attention would it be right now if God just gave Abram the land and everything where he was? Like, okay, good, cool story. But then we have the plagues in Egypt. We have the parting of the Red Sea. Yeah. You know, and all the marvels and miracles that follow after. So I have a question, and this might be a stupid question, but there it's are just, no stupid questions here. No, I have some pretty stupid questions. But this was just something I was thinking about, and again, maybe it was dumb, but God kind of describes and shows him the land that he's gonna have. He says mm-hmm. in verse eighteen. To your offspring, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. And my question is, where is this promised land in relation to where Eden was? Because he also used Eden, or I'm sorry, the great river Euphrates as a boundary or as a describing point as to where the Garden of Eden was. Yeah, so the river Euphrates extended from eden yeah along with three other rivers Uh so i could it have been in the same general area probably but mind you eden is now guarded by an angel well i i personally think it was destroyed in the flood yeah because it was an actual place on earth yeah but that's a whole discussion for another day true i don't know it could be like one of those underworlds you know atlantis yeah you know how in that movie they go into like that big weird spinning vortex thing and then they come out where there's dinosaurs and what movie aquaman atlantis oh my gosh (laughs) you've never seen it i don't remember it it's fine never mind that's anyway anyway i think that brings us to the end of this half episode yes and we're actually pretty good on time we're about 35 minutes in um anyway yes so that brings us to the end of our episode so our favorite verse from this little snippet of chapter what 13 through 15 Uh, yeah yep uh what 15 1 yes so it says after these things the word of the lord came to abram in a vision fear not abram i am your shield your reward shall be very great and I resonate so much with the first half of that. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. As in, God protects us from everything that could ever possibly happen to us. If God is for us, who could ever stand against us? Exactly. If you have God as your shield, bring it. Seriously. And then your your reward shall be very great. I think in our today terms, you know, at this point, God was talking about his blessing of the Messiah. He was talking about the land that all of his offspring were going to get and all of this, um, that he would become a great nation. But now on the other side of the cross, we're talking about eternity with him. We're talking about grace and salvation through Jesus Christ. Like our reward is going to be great because God is our shield. So that was our favorite verse. (laughs) Absolutely. So I know it's Wednesday, 
But our next episode will be next Monday on Genesis chapters 16 through 18. Um, Hopefully we don't have to cut that one in half since it is a little bit shorter. We just have a lot to unpack in those couple of chapters. But it'll be up next Monday at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. So we thank you so much for turning in today's episode. We hope you've enjoyed the time we've spent in God's Word, and we hope to see you next time. Thanks for listening. 